Hi, I'm Andrew. I'm Kirsten. And this is Most Foul. Happy Halloween! (laughs) (laughs) Wait, cover your ears. Ah! (laughs) Your whole house is gonna be like, oh my god, what just happened? (laughs) I'm being murdered up here. Oh, that's not funny. (laughs) (laughs) Not with this episode. No, it's not. I should text my mom and tell her I'm okay. So, listener, it's a dark one. We knew it was Halloween. We thought about going dark, but we went darker than we expected. Yes, very much. And, I mean, that's kind of part of our deal, right? Like, we're not experts at true crime. We're just aficionados with, you know, knowledge of varying depths. And so... (laughs) We get, we get ideas, but, you know, we don't always know what we're wading into. And with this one, I definitely didn't know. Before we get too dark. Yeah. Let's be light first. <laughs> Happy Halloween. Any favorite yes. Halloween traditions? Anything? So we have a new tradition um, in our family because I hate costumes and, like, the stress of picking out outfits and mine are never clever, like... You know, people who can get perfect, like, costumes that perfectly capture a moment or are perfectly punny or just, like, really, I suck at that. Like, deeply suck. Um, And so what I have decided to do is last year I bought a Halloween dress. (laughs) So, I mean, I have no social life, as we've discussed before, but... There's some pressure to dress up to take the kids trick-or-treating. And so Uh. now I just have my Halloween dress and I can wear that. And it's wonderful. And I'm wearing it right now. It's perfect. (laughs) When I do do go for it, it's always like you regret it. (laughs) Like one year I was the wacky arm flailing inflatable tube man. And that was cumbersome. It was too, like, the apparatus was too much. I've been the Jolly Green Giant. I've been the Brownie Paper Towel Guy. That's easy, because I already own a red and black plaid, and then I just, for, like, work, just, like, brought a thing of paper towels. And I was like, that's it. You could be that forever. But Halloween, for me, was always my favorite, but it was non-traditional in Mm -hmm. the fact that we did not go trick-or-treating on the farm. (laughs) (laughs) so that was just never an option I trick-or-treated once in my entire life wow we would do Halloween on the farm and my uncles and cousins would come and so my dad and uncles would create a haunted hayride that was too scary (laughs) always too scary (laughs) And then my mom would make homemade root beer and like a huge pot and she would get dry ice. So it was all spooky. It was our cauldron. Oh, my God. This sounds amazing. And then we would eat food and watch scary movies. Wow. So it was the best. I mean, there are lots of things where I'm like, God, my parents did 
such a bad job. <laughs> but this <laughs> this one really goes in as like, wow, they really worked to make it nice for us. That's amazing. Yeah. Wow. I want to be there. I want to have the homemade root beer. <laughs> it was good, too. I don't well, know how one makes root beer. Yeah, I don't. It just comes out of the tap, right? <laughs> oh, in Mississippi, yeah, you got the root beer tap. You just turn. <laughs> I mean, for me, I think my, I am one of those people who just, I never really liked Halloween. I mean, I like the candy and whatnot, but... I think part of the reason that I hate costumes so much, I mean, I've never been into costumes, but when I was like seven, you know, so I'm just this like little girl wanting to be who knows what, like a princess or a cheerleader. I mean, there weren't a whole lot of options for girls in the seventies, but my dad made me be a hobo because my uncle supposedly like, had been in Hollywood and knew how to do special effect makeup. And so I was a hobo that had like scars on my, I mean, it was bad. And I had to go to a Halloween costume contest in our town and I was in a small town. So everybody knew everybody. So everybody's there in costumes that they're super proud of. And I'm dressed up as a hobo. (laughs) It was terrible. So I think that's why to this day, I hate it. And I try to go all out for my kids and, like, let them be whatever they want and really never try to force them into something. But, yeah, there's deep psychological wounds from my childhood around Halloween. My mom would make us costumes, Mm -hmm. which was not out of the ordinary because she would also make a lot of our clothes. That's awesome. But I know when you're a kid, it's not always awesome, but... No, I would, like, cry because I couldn't have a shirt that had a tag in it. Aww. <laughs> it's like, I'll never, it's all homemade. Which, you know, because I did grow up in the 1800s. <laughs> <laughs> it felt that way sometimes on the farm. Well, my grandmother used to make clothes for me, too, um, when I was little. But it wasn't, like, all my clothes, you know. So it was enough of a novelty that I was appreciative. But I don't know. She went through a cape phase that I was not a fan of. (laughs) (laughs) And my mom's a good seamstress. She made my sister's wedding dress, and it was beautiful. Oh, my gosh. A skill that really is sadly dying. It's just not Mm -hmm. passed on anymore. Wow, that sounds so wholesome. (laughs) Yeah, it was really a a beautiful experience. And even now, I would rather, I'd much rather be like curled up watching a spooky movie with like good food and snacks as opposed to like at a party in an uncomfortable costume. Yeah, agreed. I mean, I've done it because, you know, you try to fit in, but definitely Halloween parties, not my, not my jam. So what do you say? Do you want to just... To face the darkness head on. Yeah, let's do it. So, like you said, we we have a little bit of a theme episode, and it's dark. Um, it's next level, so keep it in mind. And we've talked about our policy in the past about talking about sexual violence and um, things like that. So if you need extra support, we have some great resources listed in the episode notes on our, our website, mostfoulpod.com. Check them out. All right. Grounding breath. There we go. You ready? Okay. Yeah. 
So to set the scene for this one, I want to have you imagine a time rather than a place, a time before podcasts and social media, uh, before YouTube or even the internet as we know it, uh, way before MP3s or DVDs, no GPS, no cell phones, before email, uh, Columbine, Waco, and Oklahoma City were just American cities. The Gulf War hadn't started and the Cold War hadn't ended yet. September 11th was just any other day. Bipolar disorder was still called manic depression, uh, which is crazy. Before OJ and the LA riots, before Thurgood Marshall retired or Bill Clinton was a household name, a time when no one knew who Eileen Warnos, Jeffrey Dahmer, or Gary Ridgway were. Can you picture it? It was a simpler time. This was life in 1990, and when Sonia Larson and Christina Powell, both 17, first left home, which for Sonia was Pompano Beach and Jacksonville for Christina, they left home to attend college at the University of Florida in Gainesville. The girls, both honor students and go-getters, really, had attended summer classes in Gainesville to get a jump on their studies. Sonia wanted to be an elementary school teacher, and Christina had her sights set on becoming an architect with a focus on designing affordable housing for families. Both dreamed of making the world a better place for others, and maybe that's why they gravitated to one another. They met in the dorms during the summer term that year, 1990, but for the fall term, neither could get on-campus housing at UF. In spite of their parents' consternation, the girls and a third UF student moved into an apartment near campus to begin their official college careers. That was Thursday, August 23rd. Again, this is 1990, before cell phones. When you moved into a new place, it could sometimes take days to get a landline installed. So their parents did their best to stay calm when they didn't hear from them on Friday or Saturday. The third roommate was away for the weekend. But when neither girl's parents could reach them by Sunday, the Powells agreed to drive from Jacksonville, which was closer, to check on them. Alarmed that there was still no answer when they knocked at the door, they enlisted building maintenance to help gain access to the apartment. And building maintenance, in turn, asked for police assistance. Now, mercifully, police were able to persuade the Powells to wait some distance away while they kicked in the front door to the girl's apartment because the scene they found upon entering was so grisly that the maintenance man reportedly took one look and rushed from the unit to vomit outside. Yeah. Both girls had been stabbed to death, severely mutilated, and their bodies had been staged in a deliberately shocking pose or poses. Christina was found in the living room and visible as Ray Barber, the first officer on the scene, entered. Sonia was found a little bit further in on the stairs to the lower level. It was later determined that both girls had been raped and stabbed repeatedly. Investigators knew almost immediately the killer had been methodical and organized because both girls had evidence of tape residue on their mouths, wrists, and ankles, but the tape had been removed and taken from the scene. They both also showed signs of having been washed after death, presumably to remove evidence. From the very beginning, I think because of those features of this crime, there was concern within the investigative team that this killer would strike again. Hmm. Christina Hoyt, 18, who was from Newberry, Florida, about 30 minutes away from Gainesville, was beginning her sophomore year that weekend at Santa Fe Community College 
now known as Santa Fe College, which is located about eight miles northwest of the main UF campus. Although Krista was studying chemistry, she had an interest in law enforcement. In fact, she had participated in the police explorers unit in her hometown when she was in high school. And in college, she decided to take a part-time job with the Alachua County Sheriff's Office, where she worked the midnight shift as a records clerk. Coincidentally, it was in that role that she came to know Gail Barber, police officer and wife of Ray, the officer I just mentioned. At around 12.30 a.m. on Monday, August 27th, less than 12 hours after Ray discovered Sonia and Christina, Gail became concerned about Krista. She was always a responsible employee, and Krista hadn't shown up for her shift or called her supervisor that night. As Gail drove home from work in the early hours, she and another officer stopped by Krista's house to check in. Their concern grew when they saw Krista's car parked nearby, but their knocks on the front door went unanswered. They went around to the back of the house, and they were alarmed. The fence had been trampled on, and the gate was damaged. The officers went up to the back door and they shone their flashlights through the sliding glass door to look for any sign of Krista or what might have happened. And they were horrified to see a naked and lifeless body sitting on the edge of the bed, hunched over towards the floor. More shocking still, the body appeared to be missing its head. Okay, yeah, yeah. The part about this particular attack, and I have to say, of all the crimes that we've looked into, this one has been the hardest to to do. But the part about this particular attack that really stuck with me, and it may seem kind of odd given the fact that like we're talking about decapitation, but it's a little detail in one of the contemporary reports that I read about it. When Gail and her fellow officer peered through the sliding glass door into Chris's apartment, it was down low, below where the blinds ended. And they glimpsed a naked and lifeless body, like I said, with no head. Horrific. But the report also mentioned that she was naked except for her stocking feet. And I don't know why, but that trivial little detail just kills me. Doesn't it just, like, snap you? Like, I just feel like I'm in that room when I read that. Yeah, it's like one one detail further that really makes it even more real. Yeah, yeah. And and to me also really kind of emphasizes that she was just a kid. I mean, she was 18, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So I'm going to pause here because, believe it or not, the worst is still yet to come. So another grounding breath. So knowing that there was a good chance these two crimes were connected, investigators took tremendous care with the scene. It was an hour before they could secure everything, assemble the proper team, and enter the house. And some reports noted that they heard running water in the house, so they weren't even sure that whoever had done this was gone. When they did finally get into the house, even seasoned investigators were shaken to their core. The body was that of Krista, and her head had been removed. So again, I mean, just horrific. But even more, and I'm running out of synonyms for shocking here, but even more shocking, the killer had placed Krista's head on a bookshelf facing her body where the first people to enter the scene would be sure to see it. So we're talking about a killer here who not only is a horrible murderer and and we find out later rapist, but is also trying to inflict trauma on the people coming to the scene and, and just, yeah, next level. 
Her body had also been badly mutilated, like Sonia and Christina. After several hours, the coroner was prepared to have Krista's remains removed, and that's when investigators received the final gut punch of this crime scene. As they lifted Krista's body back to place her on a gurney, they realized that her torso had been incised from her breastbone to her pubic bone. Um, Her entrails spilled out of her body. So, again, staged in a way to shock and create more horror. Later that day, Monday, August 27th, the Alachua County Sheriff's Office and the Gainesville Police Department created a combined task force. So the crime scenes were in different jurisdictions. Um, But this task force included top crime scene investigators and technicians from both departments, the, the county and Gainesville Police Representatives from the Florida Department of Law Enforcement, which is like the state FBI, the Florida Highway Patrol, and 10 of the top criminal behavioral specialists from the FBI. So we talked in other cases about how there was kind of like a lower level of understanding that you had a certain kind of killer at -hmm. a particular scene. Here, that was not the case. I mean, they understood immediately what they were dealing with. The FBI was brought in immediately. They had profilers on it. And that night, the task force held a press conference to dispel rumors and try to calm the panic-ridden community. But some of the gruesome details of the murders, in particular Krista's, had been shared with the media by the sheriff himself, no less. The detail about the mutilation reminded folks of Jack the Ripper, and that's when this unknown bag of dicks was nicknamed the Gainesville Ripper, which is how he's still kind of known. Yeah. Yeah. Even without the horrifying details, though, the media didn't need much to stoke the flames of panic. The truth was there was a homicidal madman on the loose. People were understandably petrified. Phone lines, again, all landlines, were totally jammed with frantic parents from around the country calling their kids, some begging them to come home, sometimes just to hear the sound of their voices as reassurance. But again, we're at a time when communications was not what it is now. Um, So it wouldn't be abnormal to go several days or even a week without talking to your college-age kids who were away at school. But as in other cases we've seen, guns, locks, mace, all those kinds of things just completely sold out. People people were having them FedExed in from other areas because nothing, yeah, nothing could be found in that area. A lot of people fled the city um, and... A lot never came back. Others stayed in town, but they banded together for protection, kind of like people had done when Ted Bundy was active in Tallahassee at FSU, and we talked about that with Liz. They traveled only in packs, they avoided returning home alone, and many slept in groups, sometimes 10 or more people to an apartment. Two of those people hunkering down together that night were Tracy Paulus and Manuel Taboda, both 23. Tracy was from Carroll City, a suburb of Miami, She had been salutatorian and senior class president, homecoming queen, cheerleader, softball, and soccer player. I mean, just kind of all around everything. To save money, she started her studies at Community College in Miami, and she had recently transferred to the University of Florida. She was working towards her goal of law school. Manny was also from Carroll City, and Tracy and Manny had been friends since high school. If Tracy was the all-American girl, Manny was completely her counterpart. He was an athlete and a member of the National Honor Society. He was also lead in his high school production of Greece. 
His dream was to become an architect, and like Tracy, he was willing to work his way through school to make that happen. Their decision to live together when Manny's previous roommate moved out seemed an ideal arrangement for a young woman living away from home for the first time. And after the murders of Sonia, Christina, and Krista, this arrangement gave Tracy's family some comfort. Manny was six foot three, 200 pounds, and had played football in high school. What safer place for Tracy to be with an unknown killer prowling the city? The morning of Tuesday, August 28th, a mutual friend went to check on Tracy and Manny at the request of Tracy's boyfriend, who, again, was unable to get in touch with her. When Manny didn't answer the door, his friend got the help of building maintenance, who opened the door. Before even entering the apartment, they saw Tracy's lifeless body. Her hair was wet, and there was a dark bag on the floor just beyond her head. The maintenance man quickly closed the door and locked it and left to retrieve help. When he returned about five minutes later, the door was unlocked and the bag was gone. Holy shit. Yeah, yeah. The big question was, had they interrupted the killer? It's not known for sure, but it is notable that Tracy's body was not mutilated like the other female victims had been. She's the only female victim who was not mutilated. Like Sonia, Christina, and Krista before, though, Tracy had been raped and stabbed to death. Her body had the same tape residue and signs of having been washed. Manny was found nearby, also stabbed to death. It was clear from the defensive wounds that he fought long and hard to fend off his attacker. Then, just as suddenly as the vicious murders had begun, they stopped. Within days, police had a suspect they liked for all of the murders. His name was Ed Humphrey, a 19-year-old Indian Atlantic native who had the misfortune of suffering and rather publicly so, from bipolar disorder and of having previously lived in the same apartment complex as Tracy and Manny. His bipolar disorder was not well treated at the time, and he had presented as disheveled and unmoored. Combined with some disfiguring facial scars from a car accident, he attracted a lot of attention and raised suspicion in several community members who gave his name or description to tip lines at the time. The day after police discovered Manny and Tracy's bodies, Ed assaulted his grandmother during a disagreement at her home where he was staying. Police used the assault to hold him and question him about the murders. His grandmother dropped the assault charges and Ed was released, but police were so intent on holding him, they reissued the assault charges and raised his bail from $10,250 to $1 million. I can't go into all the details here because this could be a whole episode unto itself, but it's fair to say that investigators did some shady shit to keep Ed in jail, Mm -hmm. even long after they knew from DNA left at all of the scenes that the killer had type B blood while Ed had type A. So that's a whole rabbit hole that could be gone down. But even once he was released for the trumped-up assault charges that totally ignored his mental health issues, they refused to officially clear his name. Police had another prime suspect and an FBI profile that strongly suggested the perp was a lone killer, but Ed was put before a grand jury and his family was hounded by the press relentlessly. In fact, Elna Flavity, Ed's grandmother, died of a heart attack a little over a year after the murders in front of her house while arguing with reporters and pleading for them to leave her in peace. So, yeah, pretty, you know, just pretty awful all around. For years, Ed struggled under the shadow of public opinion that seemed to believe that he had in some way been involved in spite of plentiful evidence to the contrary. 
He keeps a low profile these days. His last press interview I could find was in the 90s, but I do think I found a profile belonging to him on social media. If it is him, he seems to be doing well, so that's nice. You know, he got a really raw deal, and you kind of shudder to think what might have happened had the real killer not been found or, you know, if Ed had been black. Yeah. But I digress. So I mentioned a prime suspect, and I do want to give y'all some resolution. Too often there isn't really closure. Um, And by closure, I just mean that a purpose identified, charged, convicted, you know, punished in some way. Um, Not that there's ever a real true closure for the families. But in this case, it's a slam dunk. Not only did all of those things happen, but there was also a full and willing confession that was never changed or recanted, which means fewer concerns about miscarriages of justice. I mean, this is Florida we're talking about, so you know the death penalty is on the table. Mm -hmm. Now, I very intentionally centered everyone but the killer in this case, and on the whole, I want to keep it that way. As I researched it, everything I found at like a really cursory level when you do that first pass of research was about the killer. How he was living, what he did on the days before, what he did during, what he did after, how he was discovered, his shitty childhood, everything, you know. I had to go back to articles from the 90s to find much at all about the victims, and it just pissed me off. So fuck that guy whose name happens to be Danny Rawling. He was a drifter with a troubled childhood, nasty and abusive father, abused mother who never was able to break free from him, did badly at school, dropped out, couldn't hold down a job, yada yada, tale as old as time. He's not remarkable or special in any way, just a monster who did monstrous things to people who didn't deserve it. And so that's all I'm going to say about him, like, as a person. But... I will go a little bit into the resolution of the case. His role in the crimes came to light when an acquaintance of his from his hometown of Shreveport, Louisiana, made a connection between a heinous crime that had happened there in November 1989, his extremely odd behavior around that time, his subsequent move to Gainesville shortly afterwards, and the very similar crimes there less than a year later. So someone he knew from his hometown like, got weirded out because he was acting strange and said something really fucking creepy to her Mm -hmm. husband. And her husband was basically like, this guy is dead to us. Boom. And the creepy thing was, I'm not trying to be intentionally mysterious, but she asked the husband, what was was the thing that he said that makes you not want to ever be around him? And he said that one of his favorite things to do was put knives in people. So. Pretty direct. Makes you rethink your friendship. So, you know, there's that and then the crime that happened in Shreveport, which I don't go into because, like, already the crime part here is just so dense and a lot of information. And then knowing that he moved to Gainesville and then, you know, eight months later, these very similar crimes started happening there. So she kind of puts all of that together and she shared her hunch with law enforcement And to their surprise, Rawling was already in custody on bank robbery and burglary charges. So everything just unraveled from there. Investigators connected him to a campsite in the woods behind Krista's apartment where they found loads of incriminating evidence. They got a warrant to collect his DNA, and it was a match with the DNA found at all three scenes. And then, you know, more happened, but in time, he made a confession. And Mm -hmm. he made a confession through... 
I don't know, a friend, you, you would call it, and someone he knew from jail. And he told this man all of his stories, and then investigators would ask a question, he would tell the guy what to say, and the guy would tell investigators. So it was kind of unconventional. But in the end, you know, they wrote up a statement, and he signed it. And like I said, it was a full and willing confession. Yeah. Um, the one interesting thing to note is that this man, and I can't remember his name, the friend who he did the confession through, later commented on the confession and said that the things that Rawling had told him were the most disturbing things he had ever heard in his life. So this is a hardened criminal who's in jail, probably a murderer himself, saying that you know, just beyond the pale. And there's a yeah. lot more outside of these these five murders that Rawling is guilty of. I mean, he was an accomplished, and I mean, that's such a weird way to say it, but he was a prolific rapist. Um, but he couldn't always remember names or places or dates or anything mm-hmm. like that. So he was never tried for any of that. But before he even faced charges for the murders, he received three life sentences plus 170 years for the robbery and burglary charges under the habitual offender sentencing guidelines in Florida. Eventually, he pled guilty to all five Gainesville murders. He did try, though, to avoid the death penalty by invoking mental illness and going into detail about his traumatic childhood before the jury during sentencing. But in the end, the judge deemed him, and I think this is a quote, troubled but sane, which hashtag same. I mean, like, people have traumas. Like, it doesn't make you special. Um, Having a shitty childhood just cannot explain what he became. To the extent that I read reports that talked about how the jurors, both the ones from his grand jury hearing and his sentencing jurors, needed Mm -hmm. extensive therapy afterwards to deal with the trauma from viewing the crime scene photos. Like, I bet. Yeah. So just before his execution, he finally confessed to the triple homicide in his hometown that had sparked that suspicion and connection of his former acquaintance. He had never been charged or tried in Louisiana for those crimes, though. The prosecutors believed he would be executed faster in Florida, and, you know, they weren't wrong. He was charged in 1991, tried in 1994, and sentenced to death that same year. And on October 25th, 2006, exactly 15 years ago today, in fact, Rawlings was executed by lethal injection. So dark. Yeah. Super dark. And, I mean, again, there's so much more here I could go into. I'm trying to just be concise. Um and, and kind of touch on the main points and, I think, give full space to the victims who, in this particular case, don't get a lot of discussion and current um, conversations about it. But there's just so much here, like, that's haunting. And I think that this shitbag ruined so many lives, you know, so many, not just the people he killed, their immediate circle of friends and family, but, like, the investigators, the jurors, like, this was so gnarly, so nasty that it just, it's like a creeping, I'm envisioning some kind of, like, black creeping virus or something that just infected everything. And listeners, believe us or not, (laughs) it is an astounding coincidence that you were listening to this or at least we've released it on the day of 
the anniversary of his execution. Mm-hmm. We did not know that. We didn't plan that. It is a very weird coincidence. Totally. Totally. And I mean, we've talked about this before. I, I think that doing this research really tests my metal as someone who is opposed to the death penalty because you read about this and it's hard to have any conclusion other than this guy deserves to be under the ground. And But it's it's hard and... The part about Ed Humphrey really brings that to light, you know? I mean, if he hadn't confessed, if that connection hadn't been made, if that woman from Louisiana hadn't come forward, or as we said, if Ed had been of another race, like, this story could have gone even darker. Um, Yeah. But as it is, Ed's life was pretty jacked up for a really long time, um, which is why I, you know, it was kind of Pollyanna, but... It is nice to see. I hope that is him on Facebook who I found because he's got kids and, you know, he seems like he really made a life for himself in spite of a lot of really difficult odds. Yeah. Damn. Oh, God. Okay, grounding breath. (sighs) Yeah, this one was hard. This was the hardest one I've done so far. And I think part of it, too, is, I mean, it's super minor. But as you read about stuff like this, you're always, I think, like your brain is scanning for things you can relate to on a personal level. And for me, that weekend, that late August weekend in 1990, I was also at college for the very first time and living away and scared to death. And so it was kind of personal for me in that way. Like I can very much relate to these victims. Yeah. And then for me, it's spending time in Gainesville and at UF. I I went to several parties there and stayed with friends there. And it's like, ugh. Yeah, I can't imagine. And, you know, I did up a map for this one like I've done in the past. So check out the episode notes. Um, We link to a map of some of the crime scenes. But also I thought it was important, again, as a a victim-centered story, it was important to see where their hometowns were and and how far away they were and the parents when they couldn't get in touch with them, you know, what distance – I don't know. It's just a weird thing that I have. Like, I like visualizing things on maps in that way. But also you can see that the apartment buildings of these three attacks are really close to one another. And, you know, the woods where he where he was camped out this whole time. Yeah, I don't know. It's just that extra layer that makes it real to me. And, you know, we joke a lot here, but I do think that having those little touches is a way to honor the victims in these cases that we cover. I mean, we do take it seriously what we do, even if we joke sometimes about it and take seriously the impact that these crimes have on real people and in real life. Yeah. So my side is not nearly (laughs) as dark. Uh, There is a piece that really got under my skin, but we'll get to that later. Okay head over to Apple Podcasts and rate and review our show. It really helps us out. Plus, we'll read five-star reviews on an upcoming episode. So like Kirsten mentioned earlier, we chose this topic kind of because it's Halloween. Um, And, you know, Halloween were like scary movies. And so then we thought, okay, well, what are some scary movies that might be based on a real crime? Mm Mm-hmm. You may or may not know, but this case inspired screenwriter Kevin Williamson to pin the script to the iconic 1996 slasher film, Scream. 
So as we were having this thought, this was news to me. And if you're familiar with the movie, there aren't a ton of parallels, but the ones that are there are pretty striking. And I'll talk about those in just a minute. Mm -hmm. Again, it's not like this one for one. So Williamson stated in an interview that he was watching a TV special about the Gainesville Ripper when he noticed one of the windows in his house was open. So at first he was overcome with fear and was thinking about how easy it would be for a killer to break in. And eventually that, you know, just happenstance a window was open, just happenstance he was watching a a documentary about the Ripper, but that turned into inspiration. So he wrote an 18-page script treatment about a young woman alone in the house who was taunted over the phone and then attacked by a masked killer. So it remained a short story for a while, and he was working on another script for a movie that ended up stalling out in development for many years. So he was like struggling to pay bills. And then he remembered the short story and went back to it. So he was calling it Scary Movie at the time. And then the rest is history. So it's kind of hard to explain just how influential and groundbreaking this movie was. So if you're unfamiliar with the movie, it combines black comedy and a whodunit mystery with the violence of a slasher genre. And it satirizes the cliches of horror movie, like the whole horror movie genre, popularized by films like Halloween, Friday the 13th, Nightmare on Elm Street. So like I mentioned, it's not a one-for-one retelling of the Gainesville Ripper, but here are the parallels. Most notably, the murder weapon, and then the flair for posing the dead victims. But there was a line that Williamson included, and this is the little detail that gave me chills. So, Rowling claimed that he didn't have any motive for the murder of the students. And in the movie, when the killer reveals himself to Sidney, the main character, she can't believe it's him, she asks why, and he says, quote, not every killer needs a motive. Mm. And so that, I, I was like, I got chills when I was researching. I was like, oh, God, because it really is like so dissimilar from what happened in Gainesville. But that level of connectedness of that line, which why would I ever know that yeah. <laughs> until yeah. doing this research? But yeah, it really got me. Scream was considered unique at the time of its release for featuring characters who were aware of real-world horror films mm-hmm. and openly discussed the cliches that the film attempts to subvert. So it's credited with revitalizing the horror genre. It was considered, in the 90s, it was considered to be almost dead following an influx of direct-to-video movies, infinite sequels to established franchises from the 70s and 80s. And then Scream comes along. And the movie was huge. Even I saw it. <laughs> it made $173 million, which 1996 money. So yeah. that's over $300 million now. It also had mostly favorable reviews from critics and an excellent and somewhat accidental marketing campaign, thanks to Drew Barrymore. So we actually studied this in one of my marketing classes. Kirsten, are you familiar with like the details of how the marketing campaign came. Okay, cool. <laughs> so Drew had become kind of a legend in Hollywood. You know, her breakout performance in E.T., her troubled teenage years, like, she was very well known, especially 1996. Mm-hmm. And she read the script and approached the production team herself about oh, being wow. in the movie. And the producers 
were quick to take advantage of her unexpected interest, and they immediately signed her to the lead role of Sidney Prescott. And her involvement was actually believed to be instrumental in attracting the other popular actors in the film, despite its small budget. Oh, interesting. But before filming, Drew had unexpected schedule conflicts, and she couldn't take on the lead role of Sydney. And that then created this incredible opportunity. So in an interview with Variety, Drew said, The script was so well written, and the horror genre was sort of lost at that time. I remember everything like it was yesterday. Night after night of shoots at this house crying and hyperventilating. I love that we turned things on its head a bit. I was originally supposed to play the Nev Campbell role, and then I had this epiphany that if I played Casey and got killed in the first scene, all bets were off. Kevin's writing had this tongue-in-cheek quality to it that felt different and fresh, a new approach to horror. I think when you do something that gets parodied not once but dozens of times, you definitely get the feeling it had an effect on people. (laughs) Yeah. So this was a risk. To the filmmakers, killing off their biggest star immediately in the film was unheard of. Uh-huh. <laughs> but they also recognized that it would be shocking and unexpected, and the audience would then believe that any character could die. Mm-hmm. And that's when they leaned in. And the marketing campaign pitched Drew as the final girl. So if you're familiar with horror terms, that's a trope of the innocent lead girl that's going to make it at least to the end of the movie. Mm -hmm. So they centered the whole marketing campaign around her. She had the biggest photo on the poster. She was front and center in the promo. And then when she was killed at the very beginning, audiences lost their minds. So we've talked about this off pod and, you know, that was, I didn't know about the intentional marketing and I was having trouble remembering, was it marketed with her as the lead or... Was that just kind of inferred because she was the big name? But now, like, learning that it was intentional, I mean, that's so brilliant. Because, yeah, when I was watching this and she died, it was like, holy shit, what, it, what am I watching? <laughs> yeah, it hadn't been done before. And the word of mouth was such a huge part of the film's success. So the first weekend, it only made $6 million. And the studios thought it was going to be a failure. And in fairness to the movie, the studio execs decided to release it in December, which is already a risk. Yeah. Because you don't do that. That's holiday family time. Yeah. But so six million the first weekend. And normally movies drop between 40 and 70 percent in their second weekend. Oh. Um, Second weekend, more money. Wow. Third weekend, even more money. Uh. So as people saw it and then went to their friends and were like, you are not going to believe this movie. Because <laughs> that almost never happens. I would say probably like 99% of all movies have their highest debut opening week and then it's steep declines. Wow. So, yeah. Like I said, prior to Scream's release, the popularity of the horror genre had been considered to be in super decline. Tons of movies released straight to video. So now, the film's impact was so large that it created a distinct era of post-Scream horror. Mm -hmm. Uh, And studios were rushing to capitalize on this success. Like, near-immediate releases of I Know What You Did Last Summer, Urban Legend, Cherry Falls, Halloween H2O, Bride of Chucky. The ever-important Bride of Chucky. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, 
and thinking about its place in culture, Scream ranks number 32 on Entertainment Weekly's list of the 50 best high school movies. Uh, the opening scene, so Drew's death, is marked number 13 on Bravo's 100 Scariest Movie Moments. 2008, Entertainment Weekly dubbed it a new classic. Empire ranks it as number 482 on the, their list of 500 greatest movies of all time and number three on their list of greatest horror movies of all time. So beyond this movie, it launched a Hollywood franchise. Scream 2 in 97, Scream 3 in 2000, Scream 4 in 2011. Collectively, they've made over $600 million. Wow. And again, not adjusted for inflation. Mm-hmm. That's amazing. Um, and they're not done. The fifth Scream is set to come out next year. No way. With Nev Campbell and David Arquette reprising their roles. So that's in the works right now. <laughs> the franchise also made its way to TV. So three seasons of the Scream TV show aired on Netflix or on MTV and VH1, and now they're available to watch on Netflix. Mm-hmm. And I don't know how often this happens, but Scream helped launch an entirely different franchise. The parody movie Scary Movie. Yes. <laughs> With the incredible Anna Ferris and Regina Hall. And of course, Marlon and Sean Waynes. Yes. So those five movies have grossed almost $900 million worldwide. Oh my God. And that launched so fully around the success of Scream. Yeah. yeah. So it's like... How how often does something create two franchises? Yeah. So now into the less fun. <laughs> um, we're going to take a step back into the darkness. Mm-hmm. And Scream has also been credited for inspiring some very awful things. Mm-hmm. In the years following the release of the movie, it's been accused of inspiring copycat crimes. Mm. January 1998... 16-year-old Mario Padilla and his 14-year-old cousin, Samuel Ramirez, stabbed Mario's mother, Gina Castillo, 45 times, killing her. The case became known as the Scream murder and fell under intense media scrutiny after the boys claimed they were inspired by Scream and Scream 2. The pair confessed to needing the money acquired from Gina's murder to fund a killing spree, which would include purchasing two Ghostface costumes, which is the character from Scream. His name is Ghostface. Mm-hmm. as well as a voice changer used by the characters in the film. So during the trial, Madeline Levine, a psychologist who studies the effects of violence on children, stated, there were a whole bunch of reasons they acted out that way, but the movie provided a blueprint. Mm. So the case was expected to highlight the effect of violent films on teenagers. However, presiding judge John... Cherosky ordered that evidence pertaining to Scream be barred and that the case not be referred to as the Scream murder, refusing media access to the courtroom, intending that the case be tried as a murder and not a circus. Mm-hmm. I mean, <clears throat> that's something. Yeah. So then January 17th, 1999, 13-year-old Ashley Murray was stabbed multiple times in the head and back before being left for dead by his friend Daniel Gill, 14, and Robert Fuller, 15. He was later found and saved by an elderly man walking his dog. 
The pair were dubbed the Scream Attackers after it emerged that they'd watched Scream shortly before attacking, and drawings of the ghost face mask were found in their possessions. Their actions were actually blamed on physical abuse, drugs, and exposure to black magic in the home. <laughs> Which weird. 99 seems a little late for satanic panic, but I guess not. So strange. So the victim, Murray, who later testified against the pair, stated that he believed the film may have influenced their attack. Mm. May 4th, 1999, following the Columbine massacre, an increased news media reports on the effects of violent films, games, and other media on society. The United States Senate Commerce Committee held a hearing about Hollywood's marketing of films to youth. The committee focused on horror films. The opening scene of Scream, Drew Barrymore's Murder, was shown to the committee as an example of negative media, which may be viewed by children. Mm. And then lastly, June 3rd, 2002, a 17-year-old boy lured his friend, 15-year-old Alice Bupre, out of their parents' house in France and stabbed her 42 times while wearing a ghost face mask. He ran away when he saw a neighbor approaching, and the girl told the neighbor the name of her attacker before she died from her injuries. Um, after being arrested, the boy told the police that he wanted to kill someone and emulate the ghost face character from Scream. Uh. So, we talk a lot about ripple effects and how these crimes influence pop culture and the world around us. And it really is hard to believe the impact of all of this. So, Kevin Williamson, if he hadn't been watching that special on the Gainesville Ripper, if that window wouldn't have been open, we could be living in a very different world right now. Mm-hmm. I know it's just a movie, but like everything that followed, revitalizing horror movies, like changing a lot in our media landscape. I say it almost every week, but I feel like <laughs> this has influenced culture maybe the most out of all of our episodes so far. Yeah, I mean, it's far reaching because you're right, like to to resuscitate an entire genre that that's next level. You know, with the crimes, though, I obviously people who are very smart study this all the time. But to say it's a blueprint, I think, is a good analogy because it's like, would that person have been violent anyway? Probably it just would have looked different, you know? Oh, yeah. I I think seeing a lot of the psychology, especially like video games, too, it's like it doesn't make you violent. You're a person who would have become violent either way. But the blueprint seems like a good analogy. Like it's it might be a thing you copy, but you would have done something. Yeah, it would have been a different movie or a different book or a different or God forbid you might have like had your own idea about something. It's like the same principle of being abused and having a really terrible childhood doesn't make you a serial killer. Tons of people have suffer worse abuse and aren't. So it's just not causation. Yeah, I mean, in all of this research, there have been a couple where I'm like, you know, this poor serial killer didn't have a chance, you know, where they actually seem to have been groomed into violence, like their parent exposed them to sadomasochistic porn at an early, you know, like Mm -hmm. fucked up shit, you know, but not like run of the, yeah, I'm not, I'm not minimizing it. Like, don't abuse kids. It's bad. But yeah. Yeah. And so it's more than just scream. So, Sandra London, 
the very controversial true crime author who's best known as the one-time girlfriend of convicted murderer and suspected serial killer G.J. Schaefer and the fiancé of this episode's very own piece of shit, Danny Rawling. Mm-hmm. She collaborated with him on the book, The Making of a Serial Killer, The True Story of the Gainesville Murders in the Killer's Own Words. Which, if I could just take a second, what the fuck? Yeah. <laughs> and that's kind of it. Just what the fuck? Yeah, I mean, what more do you even say? Because it's so incomprehensible. <sighs> yeah. But back to rolling in the crime. He's the suspect of the book... Beyond Murder by John Philpin and John Donnelly. Um, author Kevin Given admits that he based the serial killer David Reynolds from his novel Four Bloods on Rawling. Mm-hmm. In 2007, an independent feature film titled The Gainesville Ripper was released. It, he, the crime was also featured in so many shows, Body of Evidence, Forensic Factor, Cold Blood, The Nightmare Next Door. In 2013, the TV documentary series The Real Story aired an episode profiling the movie Scream, in which they detailed the murders in graphic detail. There's a song, Harold Rawlings' Hymn, on the 2007 John 5 album The Devil Knows My Name was inspired by him. You can hear that on our Most Foul Spotify playlist. And this was the part that, like, really grossed me out. (laughs) So ending on a high note, everybody. (laughs) Speaking of songs, while on death row at Florida State Prison, Rowling wrote songs and poems. And his works, they're referred to as an example of murderabilia. Just trying to think of how to... So I like true crime. I do not want to own and buy a thing that a killer created yeah i to me to me (laughs) that is a bridge too far yeah um i understand that we might even have listeners that fall into the category where it's not a bridge too far so that's why i was (laughs) double emphasizing (laughs) but to me that's not something i'm that interested in having or owning yeah that said Did I find Sandra London's YouTube channel and listen to an extremely low-quality recording of his music? Yes, I did do that. (laughs) Did I feel very weird listening to it? Yes. (laughs) And am I going to read you a couple of the lyrics? Also, yes. (laughs) So, a song he wrote called Mystery Rider. Jingling spurs rolling into town. Oh, black stallion, you bring a grim reaper. Dressed in snake hide, worn black leather. Mystery rider, what's your name? You're a killer, a drifter gone insane. Mystery rider, what's your game? You're a rebel no no one can tame. And with that, happy Halloween, everybody. <laughs> Damn. Yuck. You're welcome, everybody. (laughs) Who would have thunk our just random ass idea? Oh, it's Halloween time. I wonder if a scary movie as a true crime history would take us down this path. Yes. 
But as dark it is gross, I also still found it very interesting, and I hope that the listeners did too. Definitely. It's very interesting. Um, <laughs> we hope you enjoyed. Yeah, we're going to go curl up into the fetal position and then be uh, alone for a while. I'm going to go watch some Mr. Rogers. <laughs> Well, listener, we appreciate the hell out of you. A hundred percent. Thanks for listening to Most Foul. If you've got a tip for a future episode topic or want to send us your own inciting incident for a mini episode, visit our website at mostfoulpod.com and write in. Never miss a foul detail. Follow us at Most Foul Pod on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, and subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts. You're listening to a Facts from Janet production. 